Welcome to the Mary's Cup of Tea podcast. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm an author, speaker, and all-around self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey, hey, hey. Before we dive into today's podcast episode, I wanted to let you know that I wrote a book. Yes, a real life actual book that will be available in stores and online on March 23rd, 2021. It's called The Gift of Self-Love, and it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. You can pre-order the book now by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and it'll be delivered to you on March 23rd, which is the official publication date. So depending on where you order from, it should arrive somewhere around that time. I have been working on this book for over a year, compiling everything that I've learned and everything I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is that this book is a combination of not only me sharing my journey, but also it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So there are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, go pre-order it now by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. And by pre-ordering, you'll also get free access to my next online retreat. So this is my way of saying thank you so much for your early support on this book. And I can't wait to see you, hang out with you, and do a workshop together at my next online retreat. So you can find all the pre-order links to order the book and all the information for the online retreat at maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools that I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, maryscupoftea.com slash book. Go pre-order it today and give yourself the gift of self-love. Hello, my self-lovers. Welcome to another episode of Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Damn, I am really loving our new nickname, self-lovers. It just sounds so juicy, you know? Um, Today, I wanted to do an episode in honor of NIDA Week, which is National Eating Disorder Awareness Week. So this episode is dedicated to my fellow eating disorder recovery warriors. But before we get into it, I also want you to know that even if you don't identify as having struggled with an eating disorder and maybe your background is more about dieting and, and body image and it never really went to that extent of an eating disorder... I want you to know that this episode is actually going to be not as eating disorder related as you think. That doesn't make sense at all, huh? Because you're like, Mary, you're doing an episode at Honor of Nita Week. What do you mean? I mean that when I'm going to explain these 10 things that my eating disorder has taught me, the, the 10 things that I have narrowed it down to are actually very like spiritual and self-loving and more like life lessons as opposed to like directly related to eating disorder recovery. You'll see what I mean, but I guess it goes with the entire theme of this podcast where, yes, we all have our struggles and we're all dealing with different things and mental health is so important. And our biggest pain points can also be this entryway into something so much greater. Again, you'll see what I mean as we get into this episode, but I'm saying that because I don't want you to turn this episode off if you don't have an eating disorder or haven't had an eating disorder. I want you to know that I think you're going to get a ton out of this 
regardless of where you're at on your self-love journey. Okay. Could have said that in one sentence, Mary, but of course, I over-explain myself as always. <laughs> um, but I also, one last thing before we get into it, I also wanted to just thank you for giving me this platform. I don't think I've had the chance to express how therapeutic podcasting has been for me and not just like sitting here talking into a microphone because that part is actually a little bit awkward still for me but the part where I actually like plan out the episodes I um, actually journal about them so like this episode for example this was kind of like my journal prompt this morning and I like journaled these 10 things that my eating disorder has taught me and now I'm gonna verbalize them to you here on the podcast. So I just wanted to like thank you for that little, I don't know, for just being such a big part of my healing journey. Uh, to me, it's about so much more than just let me make a podcast episode. It's it's just, I don't know, it's very heartfelt and deep. And I just want to say thank you. Could have said that in one sentence too, but I am Mary. It's who I am. I love this about myself. <laughs> I keep chanting that to myself because honestly, the amount of explaining and talking I do is my biggest insecurity. I'm trying to do less of it, but hey, I have a podcast. I have every right to talk. Okay. <sighs> Let me clear the space and take a dramatic sip of tea. Gosh, we're only three minutes in and I'm already taking a dramatic sip of tea. <sighs> okay. 10 things my eating disorder taught me. Number one, this too shall pass. This is a quote that I've carried with me since the very beginning of my journey. I've even highly considered tattooing it on my body because it has helped me so much. And it's also helped a lot of the women that I've coached on their journeys. I know that a lot of my former clients reached out to me and they've said, like, I have really carried this quote with me. Um, so I think it relates to a lot of people in recovery, whether it's from an eating disorder or any other kind of mental health concern. Um, so this too shall pass. And here's why it holds such a special place in my heart. To me, this too shall pass is something that I say to myself, not just when things are quote unquote bad or when I'm struggling, but I also say it to myself when I'm really, really happy. I know that sounds kind of dark, but I think for me, I constantly need the reminder to not attach too much to my emotions. And that's not to say that I don't want you to feel your feelings or feel through your emotions, because obviously I'm all about that. But I'm the kind of person that if I feel any kind of heightened emotion, whether it's positive or negative, I instantly start overthinking it. I get in my head. It gets in the way of my life. And more and more recently, I'm trying to practice um, something called stoicism, although I'm not getting too serious about it. But stoicism is basically not being so influenced by your emotions. And so again, there's this balance between feel your feelings, but don't let them control your life because your feelings change. They're transient. They're supposed to change. Just because you're feeling horrible in your body right now doesn't mean that you're going to feel horrible in your body in an hour. You know, things pass, things change. And the more we let our, for example, in the body image sense, the more we let our body image 
ruin our life experience, which is something that I've always said to you, the more difficult it's going to feel. It's going to feel like you're trying to get out of quicksand or you're trekking through mud. Whereas instead, we can just say, oh, that's an interesting thought. That's a valid feeling. That is an emotion I have felt before. Cool. Awesome. And then just kind of like moving on with your life. Again, that's not to say that you have to suppress all your emotions, but just maybe don't attach too much to them. And so for me, I think in recovery, especially when I was first getting started as it relates to my body, I would really, really attach to my body image and more specifically my weight. And so in recovery, if my weight was higher than this arbitrary number I came up with that I thought I was supposed to be at, then I would let that ruin my whole day. And on the flip side, if my weight was lower then I would like feel so happy and I was like on top of the world and I was almost like high. You know how eating disorders, if you've ever experienced them or just any type of, I honestly think that anybody who's ever restricted, you know how you get this like in a sick way, almost like a high when you feel hungry? That is us attaching to, very strongly attaching to something that does not say anything about our worth. And it's almost like a drug, which is why an eating disorder, I think, is a type of addiction because you definitely feel that high. So anyways, what? why am I saying this? In regards to this too shall pass, whenever I would have those feelings of, you know, that high of like, oh, look at me, I lost weight. And even though I was trying to be in recovery, you know, for a while, you're kind of in pseudo recovery. You're kind of just stuck in this limbo where you secretly still want to lose weight, but you know you're in recovery. And so you're just going back and forth. But for me personally, I kept reminding myself that, hey, even though you feel quote unquote skinny today, that's going to pass too. And what are you going to do then? And that is something that I just feel like this too shall pass. It goes both ways. So this is something you can say to yourself, a little mantra when you feel, when you're struggling, when you're in a dark time. And when you're in a more or less of a happy time as just a gentle reminder to to just not attach too much to it. So I, I could make a whole episode about not attaching too much to good feelings and bad feelings and judging them and labeling them and how they pertain to our weight and our body image and our appearance. All of that could be a separate episode. But that is something my eating disorder has taught me is that this too shall pass, whether it's a moment that you think is so bad that you will never get through this, or it's a happy time that is just so good and you never want it to end. I say to myself, this too shall pass. And it kind of puts you in a more grounded mindset, I think. I don't know if that made any sense. I feel like I just rambled. But here we are. It is who I am. It's what I do. (laughs) Number two, honor the contrast. Ebbs and flows, ups and downs, recovery wins, recovery slip-ups, light and dark. All of these things are contrasting by nature. Everything in this world has a flip side. Everything is kind of has this aspect of duality. And it literally doesn't matter what it is, like anything in this world has an aspect of duality. And so when you learn to honor the contrast 
and almost embrace it, just like we were talking about in This Too Shall Pass, you're no longer so afraid of the dark times, right? Because you're like, oh, well, here is a is a difficult time and I get that, but I'm resilient. I will get through this. And this is something that I'm going to look back on. That's what I keep trying to tell myself during this panorama, during the panditty, the pancreas, the <laughs> pandemonium, everything but the pandemic. <laughs> um, what I keep telling myself is like, hey, one day I'm going to tell my kids about this time, about how we wore masks and we stayed home and, you know, your dad and I got so close and we learned how to cook new recipes and cooked banana bread until we couldn't eat banana bread anymore. <laughs> Just kidding. I didn't do that, but I know that was a trend. Um, but that's something that I talk about actually in the first or second episode I ever recorded. It's called How to Fall in Love with Yourself. And that episode is my most downloaded episode to date. I have no idea why. I think people are just sharing it. Um, when I was recording, I was so hard on myself because I felt like I was rambling. <laughs> but it ended up being a really beautiful episode. And I remember talking about how I tend to kind of like romanticize my life. Um and I don't think it's in an unhealthy way, but I think as like an artist, a writer, a creative, I'm always looking for things to look at differently. So for example, when it comes to like the panditty, I'm like, hmm, I wonder how I'm going to write about this like two years from now. Like I'm wondering what that, what that memory is going to live like in my head. What am I going to remember? Because I think we can kind of for most situations, we can kind of more or less choose how we remember things. So like, I don't know, a very silly example is like when I look back on middle school, right? A part of me, I'm like, God, middle school was the worst days of my life. But then I remember these like other moments like with friends or that's when my sister was born or you know, early Y2K and watching Lizzie McGuire, like those kinds of feelings bring up a sort of nostalgia, even though I remember in the moment kind of feeling like shit <laughs> and hating every moment of middle school and wanting it to be over um, and just really, really struggling with my bulimia and all sorts of things. But then there were also like some really beautiful times too and times that I am nostalgic about. And I think I know it feels impossible to grasp right now, but I feel like the panditty might be one of those things for us at some point in the future. Maybe not all the time for everyone, but I think at some point there is going to be a memory that you're going to look back on fondly. Even when I remember, this is what I talk about in that episode. You should just listen to the whole thing, but it's episode number two called How to Fall in Love with Yourself. But I remember when I first broke up with my uh, then boyfriend and I was living by myself and I was really struggling. I was so in debt. I was a student. It was so cold in Calgary, like minus 40 degrees. I slept on a little styrofoam pad in my apartment because I couldn't like afford a bed until my ex brought over my old bed. But anyways, I just remember feeling so horrible and so alone. And I was like, this is literally never going to end. This is the hardest time of my life. I am 19 years old. I just moved to a different country for a man. And we ended up ending our relationship really horribly. It was really traumatic. 
I felt like everything was just falling apart. I was all alone in this country. I didn't have any friends. I didn't have family. But at the same time, it also like holds a special place in my heart because that's when I learned how to be alone. That's when I learned how to work three jobs and walk through the snow at three o'clock in the morning after hostessing at a cocktail lounge and slipping on ice and falling flat on my ass and nobody was around me because it was in the middle of the night in the city and in the middle of winter. And I remember laying on that ice cold ice and just crying and feeling bad for myself But when I'm describing it to you right now, it almost kind of sounds like a scene from a movie, (laughs) which is why I just feel like hindsight in hindsight, you kind of look at things and you, you just see them much more differently. Like, yeah, they suck in the moment, but when you look back at them, they can actually be really, really beautiful. And they're all part of this almost cinematic experience. Anyways, I don't know what that has to do with what I was telling you. Oh yeah, honor the contrast. (laughs) Honor the contrast. So recovery is going to present so many ups and downs. And even though you're going to feel them so strongly in the moment, once you get through them, you truly are going to grow through what you go through. And once you're on the other side, you're going to look back on your recovery and this time in your life and all difficult times and all good times, and you're just going to see them with like a much more well-rounded, fresh perspective where you're going to watch all of the pieces of the puzzle come together and you're going to be like, oh, that makes sense. I needed to go through that. I learned so much from that. And because this has happened to me time and time again, this aspect of duality and especially in recovery, feeling like things were always up and down and I always just got through, you know, I think that really taught me to honor this contrast. So whenever I am feeling like shit, which happens quite a bit, I feel like I'm so over the panditty. I'm so over it. I know we all are and we have been and I'm coming from such a privileged place and I even feel bad saying this, but God, we're coming up on a year now. It's getting so hard. Anyways, I, yeah, I I keep reminding myself that this too shall pass and to honor the contrast and it's gonna make everything else a couple years from now when we are at a concert and we are getting together with our friends and throwing house parties, it's going to feel that much sweeter. So honor the contrast, honor the contrast of your recovery, honor the contrast of your life. And yeah, don't be afraid of the dark. It is all part of the journey. Okay, number three, I'm going to have to try to keep these a little shorter or else we'll be here for an hour which is fine. I guess an hour podcast is cool. The goal in life is not to be happy. Everybody always gets really tense when I say this at retreats, but this is something recovery. And when I say recovery, I mean like the whole journey that I was in, because like I said earlier, I feel like recovery opened up the doors to me for so many spiritual awakenings, for lack of better words. I think it was a byproduct of the books I read and the time of my life that I was in where I was just so desperate for some sort of meaning and something that's just bigger than myself and some sort of light at the end of the tunnel that I very much just threw myself into a lot of self-help, a lot of spiritual teachings, a lot of yoga and meditation, a lot of coaching, a lot of 
just different programs and certifications and courses that I took. And because I was in such a like learning and growing state on top of trying to recover from an eating disorder, on top of being in an incredibly abusive relationship, this is why I, I feel like recovery has opened up so many doors to me because it just made me a little less ignorant. Um, but here's the the big thing I learned, and I really, really want this to land. And I, yeah, I'm going to try not to over-explain it. But to me, the goal in life is not to be happy. Instead, it's to find meaning through it all. And here's why I say that. When I was in my eating disorder recovery, it felt like I was very attached to this idea of being happy. I have to be happy or else I'll relapse. I have to be happy or else I failed. And so this goal of, I just want to be happy, first of all, it's so vague and arbitrary that chances are you're not going to feel happy all the time. Not to mention when you say, I just want to feel happy, well, what does that mean? I mean, I feel really happy when I take the first sip of coffee in the morning. But that moment is obviously so small that I don't even, do you know what I mean? It doesn't even register in my head as, oh, I feel happy right now. Because we kind of just take those small moments for granted. Or like, does being happy to you mean, I don't know, having some sort of materialistic thing? Like, do you think you'll be happy when you have a certain body or look a certain way or have a car or a house or a relationship? Do you know what I mean? And so we all have these big, vague, out there ideas about happiness and what it looks like. And I think chasing happiness actually leaves us feeling empty for many different reasons. But I think the biggest reason chasing happiness leaves us feeling empty is because here's the thing, and this is what stoicism, this practice of not attaching too much to your emotions, what it teaches you is that we have this as humans, we have this kind of tendency called hedonic adaptation. And so what it means is that anytime we feel really happy or when we achieve a goal or when we're just feeling like ourselves, we adapt to that. And that kind of becomes a new norm and the novelty wears off. So, you know, it, it's no longer a big deal, right? Like once you get, I don't know, what once you get whatever it is you wanted, like your relationship, say you're, you, you find a partner in your life and then, you know, a year later, you're like mad at them. <laughs> you're like, you motherfucker, you pissed me off, right? Because that like kind of honeymoon phase doesn't last that long there. That is a better example. And so this concept of hedonic adaptation means that we kind of just get used to our happiness and then it no longer registers as happiness, which is why the more we try to chase happiness, the emptier we feel because then we're like, okay, I have everything I've ever wanted in my life. Why am I unhappy? And I've definitely felt this way, especially since starting Mary's Cup of Tea. And I felt like I accomplished so many things that I wanted to, like a TED Talk and writing my book and doing retreats and starting this podcast. And everything is so great. However, the more I thought like, oh, well, once I do this, once I have this amount of followers, once I have this in my life, once I, once my relationship is like this, once this, like you're constantly always chasing something outside of yourself, always chasing this vague definition of happiness. And then you adapt to it. And then that 
that meter changes. You're just like running on a treadmill with a little carrot in front of you forever. That's a bad analogy. I am the worst at analogies. Can somebody recommend a class for me to take to get better at analogies? Because I love a good analogy, but I struggle to (laughs) fabricate it in my mind as I'm speaking. Anyways, what I'm saying is that what has helped me is that instead of telling myself that I need to be happy all the time, I tell myself to find meaning. Okay, what is the meaning of this? What can I learn from this? Again, do you see how all these kind of life lessons bleed into each other, right? So for me, finding meaning has been liberating because now I'm no longer chasing something that's just so far outside of myself. Instead, I can just create some sort of meaning at any given point. So right now, for example, we are 22 minutes in to me recording this podcast episode And the stories that I have in my head is, Mary, you're talking so much. You're rambling. Nobody understands you. Why can't you just say things in one sentence? You have 10 things to get through and you're only on point number three and your throat is starting to hurt. I don't even know how I'm going to get this through this podcast episode, but my biggest insecurity is that I'm boring you. And so as these stories come up, instead of thinking to myself like, oh, (laughs) maybe I should be better and speak more concisely and make my podcast episode this certain way. Instead, I'm going to tell myself a real life example that this is who I am. This is what I do. This is my greatest strength and my biggest weakness at the same time, which again, duality comes into play. And the meaning behind this is that I get to just practice some self-compassion and accept myself for who I am and stop getting so perfectionistic about my podcast and that this message will reach the right people. And if you're listening to this right now, I hope that it's you. And if not, then I hope I taught you how not to be. (laughs) Um, So do you see how this is a much more different perspective? It just instantly takes you from oh my God, I got to be better, do better, have these things. Two, this is who I am. This is what's happening. I'm going to practice some self-compassion. And this can also be a part of my journey and a very meaningful part of my journey at that. So moving on to number four, recovery has also really taught me how to advocate for myself. So for example, setting boundaries with my diety friends. I used to have friends that that just diet. I still kind of do have people in my life that make remarks that are rooted in diet culture or say things that are potentially triggering. And recovery has taught me how to stick up for myself. I don't mean that necessarily in a mean way where I cutting all cutting out all my friends and preaching body positivity to them, but I mean just like saying, "Hey, I didn't really appreciate this comment. Um, I'm wondering if we can." you know, promise to only say nice things about ourselves or, hey, can you not talk about how much I eat or what my body looks like? Even when you think you're giving me a compliment, sometimes it's triggering to me in my head. I had to learn how to communicate this to people. People, everybody from my family members and friends to just like strangers at a random party that I would meet. Also, when boyfriend and I first started dating, 
I think we all live in diet culture, and I think a lot of men pick up on it too. So boyfriend used to do things like, oh, got to get back in the gym before summer. (laughs) And so we would have to have conversations about that. And I'm like, babe, not only am I, you know, I want to empower you to feel comfortable in your body, but also it is a little bit triggering to me when you say that because it makes me feel like I need to change my body for summer. So learning how to advocate for yourself in all areas of your life. Another example is at the doctor's office, asking to be weighed backwards and asking the nurse not to tell you your weight, which is something the first time I did it, I was actually at my gynecologist and the nurse or the assistant or whoever took my weight. She was like, oh, okay, I won't tell you the number on the scale. I'm like, okay, thank you. And she's like, your secret is safe with me you can trust me. Don't worry. I totally understand. She was just being like over the top obnoxious about it. And it was really uncomfortable. But also, I'm so glad that I was able to say, hey, I prefer not to see my weight. Is it okay if I step on this scale backwards? And I know it feels like it's going to be the worst thing in the world. And again, her reaction was really awkward. But like, whatever, who cares? I stood up for myself. Learning how to use your voice and stick up for yourself is the biggest thing that you are going to learn in recovery because contrary to popular belief, we're not just like people on this healing journey all by ourselves. We're also constantly influenced by the world around us, by the people in our lives. I used to think that your environment was about where you live, but now I know that your environment is about the people you're surrounded by. And so, it, you know, it might be trendy to be like, cut out anybody in your life who isn't positive. <laughs> and I think that that's a form of toxic positivity. I think what's a little bit more productive is being able to advocate for yourself and tell your friends, your family, your partner, your medical providers exactly what you need and exactly what is su- what is going to support you in this journey. That is empowering. So recovery has really taught me how to advocate for myself. And I was also thinking like for a long time, I was the kind of person that wouldn't speak up, right? I don't want to be difficult. I would never send my drink back at a restaurant because I'm like, oh, I don't want them. I I don't want them to think I'm a bitch. I don't want them to feel bad, whatever. And I've kind of gotten over that. You can be kind and stick up for yourself. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Oftentimes, the people who stick up for themselves are the kindest people that I know. And for me, I just thought about what a great skill to have, like especially when it comes to my kids. And I know there's a lot of advocating to do like when when I'm pregnant, um, just based on stories that I've heard from, heard from fellow moms. Like there's a lot of, times where you have to speak up for yourself or like at school to a professor if something happens even my little sister like she stuck up for um a kid with a disability at school the other day and I was just so proud of her because this teacher was scary I mean I used to have this teacher back when I was in middle school she actually goes to my same school and um I just know how how intimidating that can be to stick up to somebody especially somebody that you see as in a position of power But still, your voice gets to be heard. And that's just such a valuable skill to have. And I'm I'm just so excited for the kind of mom I'm going to be because I'm no longer afraid to say something and to advocate for myself. And I hope that you practice advocating for yourself too. Number five, 
Oh, this one's a good one. Self-compassion will take you farther than self-flagellation ever will. Let us look up the definition of self-flagellation because I knew kind of what this word meant. I knew that it was a fancy word for self-beat up, but I didn't know actually the definition and it's kind of funny. Self-flagellation is the disciplinary and devotional practice of flogging oneself with whips or other instruments that inflict pain. In Catholicism, self-flagellation is practiced in the context of the doctrine of the mortification of the flesh and is seen as spiritual discipline. (laughs) Oh, dark. Um, And in the regular dictionary, I just I think I just read to you Wikipedia, but in the regular dictionary, self-flagellation is the action of flogging oneself, especially as a form of religious discipline or excessive criticism of oneself. So basically what I'm getting from that is it's beating yourself up religiously. It's like constantly just criticizing yourself to a point where it becomes a devotional practice. And I don't know about you, but that's where I was at five years ago, where no matter what I did, it wasn't enough. No matter what I looked like, I still hated how I looked because I didn't look like that girl. No matter what I accomplished, no matter my grades, no matter just any kind of success that I reached in my life, it wasn't enough because I can always do better and you fucked up this and then there was that and uh, and I was just constantly criticizing myself. And so I really like this word self-flagellation because I think it really brings into perspective the, the extremity, the extremes of it. Extremity? Is that a word? Sometimes I just make words up. <laughs> self-flagellation really highlights just how extreme self-criticism can get. And so, for example, here's what I want you to think about. If you've ever struggled with any kind of binge eating or if you've dieted and felt like you cheated on your diet and kind of, quote unquote, fell off the wagon and Saturday night it was supposed to be your cheat meal and then you just couldn't stop eating, obviously, because you were restricting and your body wanted the food. But that's another story for another time. And I have many, many podcast episodes on those. But for me, when I was struggling with binge eating, I would binge all night. I would eat like up to 10,000 calories, literally have counted. And I would wake up the next morning and I would hate myself. I would torture myself at the gym. I would vow to not like do anything nice to myself. Like I wouldn't let myself purchase anything. I wouldn't let myself eat anything delicious. I was just like literally punishing myself. I would go back on a diet and I would just beat myself up in every possible way for binge eating the night before. Of course, this was before I knew that binging was such a natural response to restriction and that my body was just trying to save myself. But even before I knew that, I would just I would just beat myself up. I would hate myself. And then in recovery, one of the promises that I made to myself was to no matter what, you're going to have breakfast the next day. No matter what, you're not going to work out. You're not going to go to the gym for hours on end. Maybe I would let myself go on a little walk, but that's it. No matter what. 
And no matter what, Mary, you're not going to purge in any way, whether that's like overexercising or physically making myself throw up. And I would vow to myself, no matter what, I don't fucking care if you binge ate every single day this week, this month, this year, no matter what. I kind of had this bucket moment. <laughs> and if you listen to my interview with Caroline Dooner from The Fuck It Diet, oh, she is going to blow your mind. But she talks about how everybody who has ever been in diet culture kind of has this fuck it moment where you're like, fuck this. This is horrible. And I need to do something different. And so my fuck it moment was very dramatic. And I was like, I don't care if you gain a bajillion pounds, Mary, no matter what, you are going to stop dieting and you're going to heal from this because this is no way to live life. And I remember when I did this, obviously it was really hard. And obviously at first I would beat myself up. But then as time went on, I actually approached my binge eating with a lot more self-compassion. And I know this sounds so counterintuitive to everything you've been taught in diet culture about, oh, if you ate a lot, then you should just exercise the next morning and put those calories to good use, right? A seemingly harmless statement, but so fucking harmful. And so I remember thinking like, oh, Mary, you're so stressed. I would say this to myself, Mary, you're, you're so stressed. You're binge eating. You're in recovery. There's so many changes in your life. And just giving myself a little bit of self-compassion and putting on a heat pack because I would feel so physically, I would physically hurt from eating so much. And I would put on a heat pack and a cup of hot tea and I would cuddle up and I would watch a movie and I would feel bad for myself. And I also gave myself a lot of compassion. And guess what? The next day, same thing. I would eat breakfast, lots of self-compassion, lots of breathing, lots of water drinking, taking care of myself. I would treat it as if I just gone through something difficult in my life because dealing with something like binge eating is really difficult. Recovery is very difficult. And the more self-compassion I would bring in instead of beating myself up, the actually the less I would binge. Like I shit you not, this is what eventually helped me stop binge eating because it was no longer, I, I was no longer feeding that vicious cycle. And a big part of that vicious cycle, physically, the biggest part of the cycle is restricting, right? So if you wake up the next morning and you're like, I'm not going to eat breakfast and I'm going to overexercise, that's physically what's going to fuel that cycle. But think about what's going to emotionally fuel that cycle. The self-flagellation. That is what fuels this vicious cycle of I'm not good enough and I need to change. And so the flip side of self-flagellation is self-compassion. Self-compassion will take you farther than self-flagellation ever will. Dr. Kristen Neff, one last little note here. Dr. Kristen Neff was on my podcast episode, I think last September. You'll see it. It's called Self-Compassion with Dr. Kristen Neff. She is the pioneer of self-compassion research. And she's actually an academic and she researches self-compassion and what effect it has on us. And she says, yeah, you can beat yourself up on your way to success. And sure, you might accomplish some things. But scientifically, self-compassion has proven to help you achieve just as much, if not more than the group that criticized themselves did. So it means that self-compassion is actually a greater motivator than self-criticism. 
So all these workout videos you watch about no pain, no gain, nah, outdated. It doesn't work. And it's been proven time and time again to not work. So if you really want to motivate yourself to heal and to to do better and just live a fuller, more meaningful life, then try self-compassion. Chances are it'll take you farther than self-flagellation ever will. Okay, number six. Recovery has taught me the importance of being kind, like extra, extra kind to other people. When I was in high school, I was kind of bitchy. I'm not going to lie. I think I was just so into fitness that it felt like everyone who didn't eat tilapia out of a Tupperware was somehow failing at their lives and was not as good as me. Um, because diet culture has this aspect of morality where you feel like, oh, I'm good. You're bad. I'm good for eating a salad and you're bad for eating candy. Anyways, this moral obligation behind diet culture is another story. But needless to say, I was I, I was kind of bitchy. Um, I would never give people the benefit of the doubt. I was pretty judgmental. And the only reason for that is because I was so judgmental of myself and I was so hard on myself that, of course, I projected that onto other people. So in recovery, like just knowing the extent of mental health struggles and just how hard it can get and how we never know what's going on in someone's mind. And even if somebody looks totally okay and has everything going for them, you still don't know what they're struggling with behind the scenes. So. I'm not going to beat a dead horse here, but I truly feel like recovery has just made me a better person. Like just for that alone, I would not take anything back for the entire world. Just knowing how I used to be and how I used to look at people and treat people versus now, just I, I just feel like I'm friendlier. I'm more accepting. I'm more kind. I, I, I don't know. It just has felt like it's a lot easier to connect with other people because it's hard to connect with people who don't know struggle, right? And so before, when I, when I didn't know the struggle of going through eating disorder recovery and all I knew, I knew different struggles, of course, but I, I didn't have the emotional intelligence to recognize that everybody is going through their own shit. <laughs> and now that I do, I just feel like recovery has made me an overall better human. And I think that's that's worth everything. Okay, I have a therapy session in 11 minutes. So the last four things. Number seven, recovery has taught me how to not attach to numbers. I think that all of our brains, whether you like math or you don't, all of our brains tend to attach to numbers just very naturally. I don't know why somebody a little bit more neuroscientific could probably explain it to me. But what I've noticed is that we're very keen on attaching to our weight or attaching to the amount of money we have or our likes or followers or calories or grades or the minutes or hours spent exercising. We really, really, really like numbers. <laughs> our brains really, really like numbers. But your worth cannot be reduced down to a number. And granted, I'm still working on this in other areas of my life, not so much food and body related, but more so like money and success and those kinds of things. But my therapist says, she's like, you've replaced the thing, but the theme is still there. 
you've replaced the thing, but the theme is still there. And one of those themes is numbers and and just attaching to them and making them not just like determine how good your day is going to be, but just really like you're almost like measuring your worth and based on whatever you're comparing to or whatever arbitrary number you set out, you kind of like you either let yourself feel a lot of joy or you don't. (laughs) And that's something that I've done a lot um, with my eating disorder and in recovery. And now, especially when it comes to like social media. (laughs) So it's a constant practice. But what I keep telling myself is that your worth cannot be reduced down to a number. And I think simply knowing that my brain especially, I don't know if this is just my brain. Maybe it is just my brain and you can't relate. But I think my brain especially is like very attached to numbers. And I think, I I don't know, my degree is in economics. I loved calculus. Please don't hate me, but I loved calculus. I like math. I think it's also beautiful and cool. And I am really, like my memory is really good when it comes to numbers. Uh, Obviously, that didn't help my eating disorder because all I did was uh, memorize all the calories and stuff on food packaging. But anyways, my brain is just like hyper fixated on numbers. That's what I was trying to say. And so just knowing this about myself, um, it is nice because then I could just consciously take a step back and do things that are not going to be so attached to numbers. So for example, it's the reason why I don't wear my Apple watch or a Fitbit. Um, It's also the reason why I don't have clocks in our house. Again, numbers just give me anxiety. I used to have this clock next to my bed. And if I would look at it, because I I struggle with insomnia, if I would look at it and I would see that it's like one in the morning, it would just give me anxiety because I'm like, it's one in the morning. I'm not going to sleep and I'm going to get X amount of hours of sleep if I have to wake up at this time. And my brain just starts going crazy when it comes to numbers. So just knowing this about yourself is nice because you can kind of set yourself up to not look at numbers. so, yeah, what I learned is that your weight cannot or your your weight, your worth cannot be reduced down to a number. Your worth is inherent. Your worth is energetic. Your worth is just there no matter what, and it does not depend on an arbitrary measurement that our little human brains came up with. Number 8. Ooh, this is good. I wrote this down while I was journaling. <laughs> And it's definitely a tongue twister, but I really like how this sounded. The purposeless pursuit of pleasure. The purposeless pursuit of pleasure. So basically, feeling good for the sake of feeling good. That's something recovery has taught me to embrace. Just do things because they make you feel good, because they're pleasurable. Eating chocolate, putting cream in your coffee, masturbating, Buying yourself some silky pajamas, makeout sessions, midday makeout sessions. Do you know how good a midday makeout session is? If you have a partner that you live with or something, ask them to do a midday work uh, makeout session with you. Seriously, it is so bomb. Like 12 p.m. on a Tuesday and you're just getting some tongue action in there. Mm, so good. A deep breath of fresh air. Taking long walks just smelling the roses, for lack of better words, just doing things because they feel good. We live in a society where everything has to have a purpose. 
right? Everything has to have a purpose. Everything has to have a, just some sort of result, some sort of outcome, some sort of ROI if you are in corporate world. <laughs> but I'm sorry, we're humans. We're not machines. Learn to embrace the purposeless pursuit of pleasure, just pleasure for the sake of pleasure, doing things that are going to make you feel good, things that are just mm, juicy, yummy, delicious in all sorts of different ways. Like that is just, it's something that I wish I allowed myself more of as a kid because um, given my circumstances, I was kind of forced to grow up really fast. Um, And so I felt like I never had the opportunity to be a kid and to just play on the playground just because. But now as an adult, I am giving myself the opportunity. I'm actually pushing myself to embrace more pleasure and play and to tap into my inner child and to to do all those things to just just because just because I can just because they feel good. Number 9. Time is made up. Live in the moment. Here's what I mean by that. I used to think of my life in terms of these like weird timelines. So for example, diet starts on Monday. New year, new me. Summer body. Uh September 1st, new intentions. I used to be like really attached to these like timelines that other people would set out. And I would see them on like Pinterest and Instagram and read blogs on them. And everybody was just like, you know, we start our week on Monday, right? And then we take a weekend Saturday and Sunday. And have we ever asked ourselves like, why? (laughs) Why do we do that? Who decided Monday? Who decided Saturday, Sunday? How come? I know if you have a job, like it makes sense, right? But like, why? <laughs> How come every single company in this world starts on Monday? Like, why? <laughs> I don't know. I've said why like 80 times now, but it truly doesn't make sense to me. Like, why did we all put ourselves in this routine? Um, again, it makes sense for capitalism and productivity and producing things, but you are not a human doing You're not here just to do things and just to make other people's dreams come true. You're also a human. So all these timelines are just completely irrelevant. And so the the downfalls of thinking about like diet starts on Monday is for me, for example, if I would like binge on Friday night, but my diet doesn't start till Monday, guess what? I would just binge Saturday and Sunday too and hate myself. Whereas now I try to live my life in terms of moment to moment. So I'm no longer caught up in whatever other, other someone else's timeline. I'm more worried about my own timeline and what feels good for me. My little sister, anytime I ask her, hey, Lana, what's new? She'll say, the moment. She will literally say that every single time because she is a sassy preteen, but also because she is wise and she is onto something. The moment is new. So just because you're you're not feeling good right now doesn't mean you have to feel bad a second from now. Doesn't mean you have to wait until tomorrow. How many times have we heard tomorrow's a new start, fresh day? And I think that we can definitely find solace in that. Um, my boyfriend says that to me sometimes if I'm having a bad day, he'll be like, tomorrow's a new day. I don't think there's anything necessarily bad about it. But I think we can question and say, well, why can't right now be a new moment? And I think that sometimes it actually works out. How many times have you like woke up on the wrong side of the bed and then actually ended up having a pretty good day? 
That's happened to me more than once. Or vice versa. You woke up in a really good mood and you're like, yeah, I'm going to kill it. I'm feeling myself. And then the day turns to shit by 11 a.m. That's happened too. And so again, we get so attached to these like arbitrary timelines when in reality, just living moment to moment can be very helpful, I think. It can be very liberating. Last one. I have therapy in one minute. I'm going to be late. But last one. You don't need to be perfect to inspire others. Let others be inspired by your imperfections. Obviously, I'm still working on this. (laughs) It's constantly a practice. But I think given that I was able to turn my pain into my platform. It's really been a testament to this idea that you don't have to be fully recovered or have everything figured out or have all the answers or have the perfectly planned out podcast episode. (laughs) Um, Because clearly right now, I just rambled to you for 50 minutes and that's okay. And I'm letting myself be imperfect, even though I'm not 100%, the perfectionistic side of me is not 100% satisfied with certain things in my life. But yet, so many imperfect things are actually more inspiring, I think. For me, I really get inspired by other people's imperfections and how they embrace them. And a book that I've read that's really helped me tap into this is by Brene Brown, actually. Um, And it's called The Gifts of Imperfection. I think this is one of her more underrated books, so I highly recommend you check it out because it's pretty, pretty good. Um, So yeah, and you as well. You don't need to be perfect to inspire others. Let others be inspired by your imperfections. So that is all I have for you today, 10 things that my eating disorder has taught me. I hope you enjoyed it and let me know if you did. My love language is words of affirmation, so it really does mean the world to me when you tag me in your Instagram stories or when you leave a podcast review. That is everything to me. We're almost at 400 reviews on iTunes, which is so exciting, and I'm just so happy about the direction that this podcast episode is going or this podcast in general is going, and I hope that you are enjoying it. I love you so much. Thank you for being here, for listening, and for taking some time for your healing and self-love journey. I will talk to you next week. I wrote a book. Yes, a real life actual book that will be available in stores and online on March 23rd, 2021. It's called The Gift of Self-Love, and it's a workbook that will help you build confidence, recognize your worth, and learn to finally love yourself. You can pre-order the book now by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book, and it'll be delivered to you on March 23rd, which is the official publication date. So depending on where you order from, it should arrive somewhere around that time. I have been working on this book for over a year, compiling everything that I've learned and everything I teach at my retreats and putting it into this heartfelt, relatable, and actionable workbook for you. The cool thing is that this book is a combination of not only me sharing my journey, but also it's a workbook that you can actually write in. So there are quizzes, journal prompts, self-reflection exercises, self-love challenges, all of which will help you with body image, confidence, self-worth, and self-love. So if you haven't gotten it yet, go pre-order it now by going to maryscupoftea.com slash book. And by pre-ordering, you'll also get free access to my next online retreat. So this is my way of saying thank you so much for your early support on this book. 
And I can't wait to see you, hang out with you, and do a workshop together at my next online retreat. So you can find all the pre-order links to order the book and all the information for the online retreat at maryscupoftea.com slash book. I'm certain that the tools that I share in this book will change your life as much as they've changed mine. So again, maryscupoftea.com slash book. Go pre-order it today and give yourself the gift of self-love. <laughs>